So this evening I'd like to speak about the river of life, the river of change. When I was in my 20s, I was very inspired by a book by Hermann Hesse called Siddhartha. And what remains with me from that book mostly is the part about the river, the part about listening to that incessant change of the flowing river. Listening deeply, as I have continued to do in life, to the changing river of life. Every part of those beautiful rivers of the earth, fluxing and changing all the organic material in it, all the water properties, all the deep currents, all the energies of the bubbles on top, rising and passing away. The innumerable conditions that arise and pass away in a river in one's life. And just as I could easily open my heart into the naturalness of that flowing river, I could open my heart to the naturalness of this life that I live, that each of us live, flowing, meeting other rivers, carrying different material, organic material, energies with us, meeting the ocean, evaporating along the way into humidity, rain or snow, coming back to the earth again, and just that constant recycling. So it's not just the river, it opens up to much, much more than that. So this similar process that our life goes through, that this body and mind with its energies go through, this is what we're opening to here. And in recent years I've been tuning into more closely the immensity and the infinity of time that that process has been going on. This infinity of time called samsara, that cycle of continual birth, life, and death. Tuning into how long has this been flowing on and fluctuating from time immemorial. The Buddha said that there is no discoverable beginning, just this changing nature at every level. And this is what we're discovering here, this changing nature at every level. In the ancient suttas of the words of the Buddha, he gives us a sense of the infinity and opens us to the immensity of this on the cycle of birth and life and death. So a Brahmin came to the Buddha and asked him, how many eons have elapsed and gone by in terms of this wandering on in the cycle of samsara? Now an eon is an immeasurably long time. In uh, Buddhist cosmology it's called a kalpa, K-A-L-P-A, and it's, uh, I looked it up, it's 4.32 billion years. That's one eon. In astronomy, it's 1,000 million years. So how long has it been going on? So I want to read from some of the suttas, because I think it's important to 
really transfer to you, transmit to you what the Buddha's teachings are originally. It is possible, Brahman, the blessing what one said, to know how many eons in this way. Consider the grains of sand between the point where the river Ganges originates and the point where it enters the great ocean. The eons that have elapsed and gone by are even more numerous than those grains of sand. It is not easy to count them and say that there are so many eons or so many hundreds or thousands or hundreds and thousands of eons. For that, for what reason? Because, Brahman, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. In other words, it's time to be liberated from them. He also said, when he was dwelling at Savati, Bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. The first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone in misfortune, in misery, whenever you see anyone happy and fortunate, you can conclude, we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. For what reason? Because, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough. It is time to be liberated from them. It is not easy, bhikkhus, to find a being who in this long course has not previously been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. For what reason? Because, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. The fluctuations of just one life, birth, through the stages of infancy, childhood, adulthood, aging, sickness, health, the process of death, all the happiness and sorrow, all the gain and loss that we have gone through in just this lifetime and even before has slipped through our fingers like water gathered in our hands from this river of life. When I was in my 20s, the end of the river was not something I thought about very much. I was too busy with basic survival and raising children and making sure that things were taken care of. But even so, I did have a lot of interest and a beginning sense of urgency when I was in my 20s to understand the meaning of life more deeply. And I know that each one of you may say it in a different way, but that's how, why we get here. We want to understand more deeply. Now at this age that I am in my 60s, a lot of the river has gone by. There's more of it behind me than in front of me, probably. And there is this natural arising of a reflection on aging and death and the preciousness also of this human life. As we get older, I'm sure many of you agree, 
uh, when you get to a certain age as we get older, it just becomes more precious, this life that we have. So as I delve into the Dhamma even more profoundly, I keep that understanding of the impermanence and the preciousness of life more in the foreground of my attention. Last year I did some personal practice in Nepal, in Lumbini, the birthplace of the Buddha. And usually I don't bring any reading material at all. And I don't write very much, just make little notes, which I mentioned earlier I, don't, I never understand anyway at the end of retreat. <laughs> I told a group today that there's a whole drawer full of my little notebooks, and I don't know why I'm keeping them, clinging, I guess, but I look in, into those notebooks and I have no idea why I wrote that down, whatever it was. But on this retreat, uh, when I went to Lumbini, I did bring some words of advice from His Holiness Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan teachers, always inspires me. So I'd just like to bring forth his words for you. There were about two pages that I, I read each day, and I'm just reading part of it to you. Ask yourself, how many of the billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being? How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do? How many of those who start continue? How many of those who continue attain ultimate realization. As long as you fail to recognize the true value of human existence, you will just fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. But once you really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring, you will definitely direct your energy into reaping the true worth of your life by putting the Dharma into practice. Just as every single thing is always moving inexorably closer to its ultimate dissolution, so also your own life, like a burning butter lamp, will soon be consumed. It would be foolish to think that you can first finish all your work and then retire to spend the later stages of your life practicing the Dharma. Can you be certain that you will live that long? Does death not strike the young as well as the old? No matter what you are doing, therefore, remember death and keep your mind focused on the Dharma. Powerful words that kept me going each day, using my time wisely, not frittering my time away, just uh, trying to look for pleasant experiences to fill up the day or fill up empty parts of the day. The Pali word for impermanence is anicca. And the subtleties of it include the arising, the becoming different, the becoming otherwise, the disappearing, never staying the same. And this is what we're guiding you to experience as we have been guided as well. In a bigger way, it's seen as the flowing onness of life all of life, like a beginningless, endless river 
flowing and changing, evaporating and recycling again, over and over and over again. We see change all around us, of course, and uh, we can say yes. If you, if you stop anyone in the street and, and ask that person, do you understand impermanence? And of course, anyone would say, sure, everyone has had a death in the family um, at some point. We see the seasons changing. We see light changing into darkness, darkness changing into light. There are many changes we see in our outer experience. The forms that winter brings. I was uh, here in earlier to do an, a self-retreat this year also at the Forest Refuge, and I came when there was snow. Uh, it was January. And of course I saw the snow falling and then uh, hardening and then melting and uh, the whole change that was beautiful to see it going into the spring season. And then the spring, here we are in summer, turning into the summer season. And this turns into the beautiful fall that we have here in New England. And fall turns into winter, and then the cycles just go on and on and on and on and on. So there's an immensity and profound depth to understanding it all, beneath the forms that we see outside of us. At Savati, the Buddha said again to the bhikkhus, forms are impermanent. The causes and conditions for the arising of form are also impermanent. As form has originated from what is impermanent, how could it be permanent? All the conditions that come together to make any moment, every single one of them, what we are being guided to see, is impermanent. Do we get entranced by the beauty of the forms of nature and not see deeply than that? Do we let a great teaching of the impermanent nature of every moment that we see slide by us unconsciously? I want to read a poem by Kenneth Rexroth. It's called Another Spring. I shortened it for the sake of timing, but the main points are here. The seasons revolve and the years change with no assistance or supervision. The moon, without taking thought, moves in its cycle. Deep in the night, a pine cone falls. The campfire dies out in the empty mountains. The sharp stars flicker in the tremulous branches. But here we lie entranced by the starlit river and moments that we think should each last forever slide unconsciously by us like water. We may say it in different ways because we're all unique, but we come to this practice to understand the nature of our life more deeply. That's why as hard as it is, we come back, we keep coming back to the practice, to experience it in a way that liberates our minds and hearts from the ignorance of not seeing life clearly, the delusion of plastering life over with some pleasant idea of it that we're constantly chasing 
and never really satisfied with because it keeps changing. We practice deeply to understand the causes of suffering so they can be let go of easily. And many of you today and yesterday have realized for yourselves that to hang on to what is impermanent causes a lot of pain. You come to see this in your own practice. It's not something you're repeating from a book. We learn that to cling to what changes and what cannot last forever brings that kind of pain. It's like holding on to a rope that's always moving in your hands, holding on tightly. All it does is give us rope burn. We learn that to control what is constantly changing can't bring happiness. So in our practice, we're learning to let go more, to just not try to make everything pleasant, run towards the pleasant, push away the unpleasant. Maybe we can just learn to open to it and learn from that. The teachings on Anicca and the profound experiential understanding of impermanence is something the Buddha pointed to as highly important in our practice because it comes with the possibility of understanding life in a liberating way, not in a limited way, but we see in in a much larger, more infinite way we see life. The Buddha said that better a single day of life perceiving how things rise and fall in each moment, I might add, than to live out a century yet not perceive their rise and fall. So this practice that we're doing, the practice of vipassana, is aimed towards this experiential understanding. And it's why we ask you um, to put the books away, because you're not going to learn this experiential understanding in a book. I think I've told the story quite often that when I went to my first month-long retreat, I was reading the book, The Experience of Insight. You know, it was a book by Joseph Goldstein. And uh, it was about 30 days in retreat and the Dharma talks that were given over 30 days. And when the teacher found out that I was reading the book instead of doing the practice, he said, Kamala, duh, Put the book away. You've got the Dharma right in your own heart, in your own experience, and that's what you're here for. You can read the book at home. So, okay, I put the book away, and from that time on, I knew that that was exactly right. What, what, what was I doing hearing somebody else's words when I had the chance to listen to my own heart? So Vipassana means understanding or seeing in profound ways. The various ways are experiencing what's happening in this fluctuating body, in this fluctuating mind, in this body-mind continuum. The fluctuating nature of it from a very more pixelated, moment-to-moment view of it. Not so much about the nature around us, but about the river, the nature within us that's always moving. It's this incessant and sometimes mind-boggling, arising, morphing, dissolving, moving, transient nature that we begin to see moment to moment to moment. This is anicca. 
it's very um, mind-changing to see Anicca. The view of life it's, is radically changed. It's profoundly pivotal. Because we begin to see into the insight of dukkha, into the fact of suffering, the first noble truth, there is this fact of suffering. There is this truth of suffering. That's the first noble truth. That there is no ultimate or lasting permanent satisfaction in anything. And the operative word here is permanent. There's fleeting satisfaction, but not lasting satisfaction in any person, whether it's our own bodies or minds or someone else's body or mind, in any condition, in anything, in any combination of conditions, everything is always changing. This is dukkha, the understanding that we're not really going to find satisfaction, lasting satisfaction in anything in this life, in samsara, because the nature of this life is to always change. One of the first moments of this experiential understanding of Anicca for me was when I went to one of my first uh, nine-day retreats. And this was, in, uh, it was about in my 30s, in my early 30s. And I was taking a retreat with my first teacher, Manindraji, on Maui. And I was walking on this dirt path, um, gravel dirt path, and that's where I was doing my walking practice. And it was an old guava factory. That's where uh, it turned into a retreat center. And um, there were many hibiscus trees, very old, tall hibiscus uh, trees around us. They, they were, they're really bushes, but these were very tall and they were almost like trees. And some of you may know that a hibiscus flower lasts only for one day. Um, it, it comes into bloom and then it even it starts to fall even before it withers sometimes. And so I was just walking along, doing walking meditation. The mind was very settled, very quiet, and it was it had a good amount of calm, of concentration, uh, an adequate amount of non-reactivity. And so all of a sudden, to the side of my eye, to the left side. I saw the, the, some of the branches of the hibiscus tree fluttering. And so I just kind of looked around and noticed seeing, seeing the fluttering. And then I saw one of the flowers just fall to the ground. And it, it really hit me as, oh, the death of a flower. It, just kind of seeing the whole thing, boom, fall to the ground. So there was that seeing, seeing what was happening. But it wasn't like this long seeing, seeing. It was like the mind could see all the moments of seeing coming up, moment by moment by moment. So it also saw how the mind was knowing that. And each moment of knowing it was also fluctuating, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. And actually, I became very fearful of that because of seeing that quickly fluctuating moment, not just of something outside, but the perception of it and also the knowing of it was also fluctuating. It was a shock 
It was a real shock to the mind because I'd never seen anything like that before and I'd always kind of reveled in the magicalness and the kind of romantic view of, of uh, nature. After all, you know, I live on Maui and so I was kind of entranced by it then. With all the building going on, that's all wiped out now. <laughs> so I used to get engrossed in the beauty part of it, but this was really different. And so I, I ran, you know, ran means walking fast from there to Manindra, who was in the room, in his room. And I knocked on the door, and I was very upset, and I was nervous and shaking because of seeing this, seeing how everything's so fluctuating. And uh, I was really scared to see it. I felt like things could just disappear before my eyes. And so the solidity through the impermanence, that solidity was started to break up. I was crying and Manindraji was smiling. You know, when this happens that the yogi is crying but the teacher is happy because it's an understanding that you, st- you start to open to about the impermanence of everything and which also opens to the unsatisfactoriness that we can't hold on to that beauty It's not always going to be there. Flowers die. People die. Things change. I like the way Goenka puts it. Everything is in a state of decay. That really says it, you know? And we are too. I mean, no matter how young you are, you're in the the process of dying. We all are. So he was very happy that I was seeing this truth of Anicca and from that the truth of Dukkha. And um, he just sat back in his chair. I can remember him. He had kind of this tilting office chair in his room. And he just kind of leaned back on it and just, he says, very good, very good, you know. (laughs) I was, um, and I thought, well, okay, the teacher says it's okay. So I'm going to relax more about this. And it, that's why it really helps to have a teacher because sometimes we come across these experiences and we don't know what to do with them. It feels like life as we know it is falling apart and indeed it is. But it's falling apart so that we can see something more deeply so that we can understand the nature of life in a way where we can live in accord with it and not use our energy to fight it to resist it. The characteristic of dukkha, which it translates into suffering, uh, is better described as the oppression by the incessant origination and dissolution of whatever that moment of experience is. Oppressiveness. And sometimes that's how we feel. I mean, many of you can attest to that. It just feels oppressive to see how this comes again and again and again. And when is it going to end? And then we get some moments of pleasant or calm or okayness and we can relax in that. And it's just giving us the energy and the qualities of mind that are growing in in the mind and the seven factors to be able to face it again, to face this anicca, this dukkha again and again. This unsatisfactoriness is that nothing in this changing condition world can give lasting satisfaction. 
So I know that it's all kind of hard for us sometimes to accept that. But finally we do. And, and our teachers would ask us, how many moments do you have to see this to finally agree? <laughs> to finally say, yes, it's true. And when we do, we stop resisting it. We use our energy to open to it rather than to push it away. We use our energy to open to it rather than to turn and look for something that's more pleasant. This is what we're doing in samsara, running away from the unpleasant, running towards the pleasant over and over and over again. This is the cycle, the wheel of life and death that we're on. So actually, when we live in alignment with these deeper understandings that we come to know experientially, we actually live in greater peace. There's just this deep understanding that this is how it is. This is how it is. We also learn that what is ceaselessly transient is by nature uncontrollable. And that's really scary. Someone said just recently, it's just so uncontrollable. And just saying it as a matter of fact, not as a complaint, but just how things are just so uncontrollable. The mind moves from one thing to the next. And you can't just say stop. Just see it. See the mind because of clear mindfulness. Seeing the mind do going from one experience to another, one experience to another, and sometimes so, so fast that it realizes, the wisdom realizes the uncontrollability. We think that there's someone in control, either inside or outside, or a combination of those two. But we're constantly looking at what moment to moment what's going on inside. What is this human mind made up of, this human body? And seeing each piece of it arising and passing away, coreless, empty, not solid, not permanent. Many conditions coming together to create a moment of experience, all impermanent also. These are known as the five aggregates or heaps. Form or physical sensations are arising and passing away. Isn't it true? Feelings, perception, these are all, these two, all arising and passing away. Intention or volitional formations, coming and going. Some of you practiced on noticing intention today in in the group, one of the groups I had, did you see that you could make it permanent? It's arising and passing away also. And even that is empty. It's not solid. It's coreless. We think sometimes this body is me, is mine. These feelings, these emotions that I have, these belong to me. This perception is me, is mine, is who I am. Intention, consciousness. Consciousness also is one of the last things to be understood that humans tend to hold on to as me or mine or who I am. But in our practice, one by one, 
through each one of the five aggregates, our teachers guide us to understand the impermanent, impersonal, unsatisfactory nature of each one. And it has to be complete with every single one of those five aggregates. They're called the five aggregates of clinging because by not noticing clearly what's happening in each moment, delusion cobbles up these heaps of these five aggregates, these five heaps. It cobbles them together and makes something solid out of them, a solid sense of self. But when wisdom is there, as developed by mindful attention, it it sees each experience as it truly is. Coreless, impermanent. Just like a, a cloud coming and going. Just like a river passing by can't hold on to anything. At Sabati, Uh, the bhikkhus uh, got this teaching from the Buddha. Form is impermanent. The cause and condition for the arising of form is impermanent. As form has originated from what is impermanent, how could it be permanent? Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. The cause and condition for the arising of all these is also impermanent. As consciousness has originated from what is impermanent, how could any of that be permanent? The Buddha gave this teaching 159 times just in this one book called the Kanda Samyutta in the Samyutta Nikaya. It was so important, giving the teaching in different ways over and over again. Of course, as Deborah spoke last night, on a relative, rash, relational, consensual level of existence, this sense of self does exist. We, it's a useful concept in our lives. It's appropriate to think of this body and this mind together as a sense of self. Otherwise, as I said to one of the groups, we, we wouldn't choose our own shoes. You know, we just pick anyone out. We have to know what home to go home to and who is actually our husband or wife. So it differentiates one between another, and we need to have this in our lives. But we also begin to know on this absolute and ultimate level of, ex- of existence, as Deborah was speaking about last night, that these experiences, one by one, all these experiences that make up the sense of self, we see them as coreless, impermanent, evanescent, arising and dissolving. And we understand it experientially, not because anybody said so. The Buddha said to his son Rahula, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop perception on impermanence, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. And at first this can be scary, but later on it's such a relief. It's not that we we lose our understanding about the sense of self on the relative level. It's just that we gain a deeper understanding on the ultimate level. 
and we understand and hold them both with a, an equal amount of respect and honor. So our teachers, one of our teachers says that deeply understanding Anicca is the beginning point of truly realizing the Four Noble Truths. And when we get on the path of realizing the Four Noble Truths, there is some surety that there'll be a completion of that path to the end of suffering. It becomes more sure when we begin to open to the First Noble Truth, the truth of suffering. It brings us to a place of genuine refuge because we start to see experientially that the mind is freer and freer of greed, of hanging on, of aversion or hatred and of delusion. The mind begins to see, the mind and heart begins to experience all of life much more clearly, not colored by these experiences of greed, hatred and delusion. We live in alignment with that truth instead of resisting it or wanting it to be otherwise. In interview with our teachers, they would ask us, is it permanent or impermanent? Just like the Buddha asked his disciples during that time. And sometimes they would ask us, is this the experience, is this the understanding of Anicca? Are you seeing Anicca? Are you seeing Dukkha? Are you seeing Anatta? Which of these is being seen in that particular way that you're expressing your practice? And just really help us to understand that these insights are coming for ourselves, from our own hearts and minds, from our experiences. So this requires not getting involved on the conceptual level so much because the experience of Vipassana is pointing us more to the ultimate level, the direct experience uh, of whatever is arising, not on the conceptual level of thoughts. Sure, thoughts will arise and will know their content quite automatically, and that's fine, no problem with that. But it's when we feed that over and over again that we kind of stay at the surface level of our experience. I remember once going to Seda Upandita and I had these kind of um, new mind-changing experiences for me, seeing life in a different way. And uh, so I went to him and I started to talk about that experience of even seeing the, the elements expressed in the experiences of mind, of the mind. And he stopped me. All of a sudden, in English, he said, Stop. And then he translate. He said something, and the translator said back to me, "If you continue in this way, meaning just thinking about my experience over and over again, if you continue in this way, you will go backwards." He just wanted me to stay deepening and deepening and deepening on that level without needing to think so much about the experience that was happening, even on a spiritual level. So not getting caught in the internal dialogue. And sometimes we are, and it's okay, you know, that little getting caught is not going to be that harmful. But when we just continue to feed it, um, that's when we just stay on, on a level that 
is, it's just like we can hang out there in a Dharma parking lot for years. <laughs> I'm telling you, it can be for years for people. And knowledge is so seductive, even Dharma knowledge, so seductive. I love this saying by Carlos Castaneda, um, a student of Don Juan. He said, whenever the internal dialogue stops, the world collapses, and the extraordinary facets of ourselves, of mind and body continuum, surface as though they had been kept heavily guarded by our words. So that's how it can be, heavily guarded by so many words. So listening to the flow of the river, of this change over and over through the years of practice and also in daily life, Deepening that understanding both ways uh, in the intensive retreat and then integrating it at home and in my daily life and then bringing it back so it becomes more of a seamless practice rather than, you know, all that's important is intensive practice. It's all important. We don't put all of our eggs in, in this basket of being at this kind of, in this kind of seclusion and support. This helped me to relax more into accepting the, the qualities, the understanding of anicca or impermanence, anatta or the not-self understanding, the impersonal understanding of all of life and the unsatisfactory nature of life. Now this doesn't mean that there aren't happy moments. Of course there are many happy moments and actually there are more happy moments the more the lesson the lessening of greed hatred and delusion in the mind uh, makes for more happy moments more sense of contentedness and peace um, and when there's happiness they are looked at as very precious because they're fleeting because they don't last so they're not hung on to not all the time but if they are sometimes but they just come and go like everything else. So we open to not just the teachings of the outer weather patterns and nature, but to the inner teachings that we have by doing our practice here together. We see the flux of nature inwardly. Manindra used to say all the time, it's the law, surrender to the law. When he said the law, it would mean the arising and passing away of all phenomena. This is the Dhamma. This is the law of how it is. Just surrender to it. In that way, he said, you will have deep confidence in yourself, deep confidence in the Dharma, deep confidence in how things are. From the Sutta Nipata, the Buddha said, Let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not what remains in the middle. That's what we're learning to do. We have to stop looking for solid ground in our practice here to get used to how it is, to get used to that great feeling of vulnerability and know that The mind can live with this too. 
that vulnerability that opens to life and not pushes it away, the vulnerability that opens our hearts. So finally, this flowing onness of the river teaches us not to resist the truth, but to surrender to it. And it's not that we stop living meaningfully. Actually, to surrender to the truth means that, as I mentioned, we see the preciousness of life in a much deeper way. We see the importance of being kind and see the importance of understanding the laws of cause and effect in terms of our actions and our words in the world. We see that it's important to practice deep renunciation. We were talking today in one of the groups about, uh, Steve had mentioned about not looking in the mirror, and one uh, person was saying that she was trying it and seeing that it, it took... Uh, practice to do that, you know, because we have the habit of kind of doing things that um, looking in the mirror. And each time, of course, I don't know about you, but I would look in the mirror and say, I look okay, you know, (laughs) I'm okay. There's always kind of a re-solidification of a sense of I there. And so uh, when I was practicing not looking in the mirror when I was a nun, I didn't have to look if my hair was not sticking up, but because I didn't have any hair, I was bald at that time. Um, I didn't look in the mirror, and uh, not very much, maybe once in a while when there was a bathroom that I went into at the monastery. But what would happen when I wasn't looking at the, in the mirror all the time is this sense of me and mine and I would diminish. And uh, it was really wonderful. I mean, it's like... No, no me, no problem, you know. It was very, very freeing. So we begin to practice renunciation. And as uh, Suzuki Roshi said, true renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, really, but knowing that they go away. And then we learn to live with them more in a more loving way. So we use our life skillfully. We turn towards the Dhamma, towards liberation. We use our life to serve humanity. We know what's important. So I'd like to read, as as, um, Deborah did last night, from the Theragatha. This is a story of Mitakali, a nun during the Buddha's time. And she became enlightened during the Buddha's time and from the Buddha's guidance. She describes the precise moment of realization characterized by this insight into impermanence, the insight into anicca. She was reputed to be a very angry, domineering, difficult, and self-centered person. So we all have a chance. Because most of you, if not all of you, are very nice people, very kind people. She heard how to practice through the Buddha's teachings and uh, with the Satipatthana Sutta, and she changed, and eventually she became an arahant. So these are her words as translated through the ages. Although I left home 
for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before the body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. The mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching had been done. So let's sit for a moment and let the the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.